Chapter Seven of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: Measuring Brains and Hearts. It happened that the little woman in the pale blue and white muslin found herself at the small social gathering in a position not to be envied by most ladies. She had accepted Mrs. Bacon's statements in reference to the nature of her entertainment with more literalness than the result justified. The spacious parlors were quite well filled, and the larger number of the ladies were dressed as they would be for a fashionable party downtown. It made the blue muslin very conspicuous. The wearer felt that she would either have compromised with the black silk dress, or remained at home, had she understood. I do not wish you to understand that she was miserable, what would have sent poor Mrs. Evans home with a nervous headache, and have held her for three days in alternate fits of weeping and indignation over the trials of poverty, only brought a heightened blush to Mrs. Spafford's cheeks. Still, no lady likes to consider herself the subject of curious remark, and for the first half hour it was hard for my friend to put away from her the pleasant occupation of contrasting the blue muslin with the delicate lavender and fawn and ecru silks that shimmered around her. "'Am I really not above this sort of thing?' she asked herself at last in astonishment and indignation. "'Am I so accustomed to judging of others by their dress?' that I must needs conclude that their only estimate of me is by the cost of the clothes I wear? And she resolutely resolved to interest herself so speedily in somebody or something, that her thoughts would be diverted from this unhealthy channel. It was not easy to do. She found herself in a new atmosphere. As a teacher, and as a niece of the well-known General Howell, she had moved in what was called good society had been accustomed to meeting people of refinement and culture, people who attended lectures and bought books and read them, and read reviews and discussed them, and kept reasonably well posted as to what was going on in the literary world, both at home and abroad. People who dressed well they were too, and yet who much affected that form of dressing which is liable to pass unnoticed because it quietly fits into the general whole. Mrs. Spafford, sitting over on the low couch between the windows, tried critically to study the difference between the two poles of society, for they really seemed to her as far apart as that. These people talked, and talked well. That is, they used refined language and well-sounding phrases, but there was a curiously superficial tone to it all. She mentioned books of which she was confident they had never heard. She advanced opinions which were met with a well-bred stare, or, at the utmost, with a bewildered bow. Yet they talked glibly of the latest matinee, and what a divine voice the latest musical favorite had, and how perfectly exquisite the collection of paintings was at the recent exposition. Yet did she attempt to individualize paintings, and discover which school or class of studies or varieties of landscape, form, color, or style, were considered the more exquisite, she was met with that bewildered look and half-doubting assent which may mean almost dissent, so undefined is it. In the world of books it was much worse. She could not be sure that those with whom she chanced to talk 
had read anything, or were informed beyond the mere titles of certain, not so recent, publications. The authors of those might be foreign or American, male or female, for all knowledge that one could gain on the subject by talking with those who had heard of them. Mrs. Spafford found herself bewildered. These ladies, some of them, talked freely with each other, and laughed much, and seemed to be enjoying themselves, but the subject was always something that she did not quite understand, and that they seemed incapable of explaining. Nearly all of them were strangers to her, most of them being those who had patronized the festival more by eating its cake and oysters than by actual hand-to-hand -hand help. Others of them being, indeed, from the city in which she had spent the last seven years of her life, yet being as utterly unknown to her personally as though they had occupied separate worlds. Jenny West, her schoolmate, was present, it is true, but she was constantly the center of an animated group of young ladies and gentlemen, who held themselves entirely aloof from the married portion of the company, and had much merriment and much chatter among themselves. Mr. Spafford, manlike, had found speedily a pleasant center among certain men whom he met constantly in business life, men who gave no attention personally to the distinctions of society, therefore he felt at home and was evidently enjoying the evening again and again did our bright-hearted little woman try to rouse and throw herself into the whirlpool of talk about her as one who was interested and had something to contribute it seemed all in vain she even realized that she hushed the flow of talk on one or two occasions by attempting to join was it the effect of her blue muslin back to that again Mortified with herself, and with the failure she was making of the evening, she suddenly leaned forward, ostensibly to caress a sweet-scented vine that was reaching up to look in at the window, but really, with one hand touching that and the other carried for a moment to her eyes, she sought refuge from her tormenting self, or, as she was fond of expressing it herself, she ran to her hiding place." the lord jesus had been invited to accompany her to that entertainment she had come in good faith believing that he would be her companion and familiar friend it might be that she had mistaken the surroundings it might be that the atmosphere was not a congenial one for him yet surely he would abide with her and help her in honest effort to serve him even here she leaned back again presently and welcomed with a bright smile the young man, Will Coleman, to her side. It seemed a good omen that the first to come to her after this struggle should be Will, for she had been seeking an opportunity to talk with him. "'You are not social,' she said cheerily. "'At least, not with us. You have never been to see us in our new home.' "'I'm coming, though,' he answered." My good intentions in that line have been sadly interfered with, but I am on my way. I don't suppose you could imagine how anxious I am to see you keeping house. I can't get over the queerness of the idea that you are actually a married woman settled down in life. How does it seem? A close observer would have detected an undertone of anxiety, or at least a most unusual interest in the experiment of housekeeping. Why, it seems just what it always does to every happy woman, 
a delightful spot and a satisfying life. Do you really believe that? There was visible eagerness in his tone now. There is such a difference in women. Most of them seem to me of the stamp who could not be happy unless they had four thousand a year to spend on housekeeping alone, and enough more to devote to mere pin money. I don't believe ladies in general like housekeeping. You are slandering ladies in general. I don't think you are intimately acquainted with many true women who are happily married. She spoke earnestly enough, but not in a way to invite answer. The truth was, she did not want to talk with Will Coleman in a way that would precipitate him into housekeeping. She was by no means sure of Jenny West on a salary of eight or nine hundred a year. I don't feel like discussing domestic economy with you just now, Will, she said, speaking quickly to ward off the question that she saw was coming. I have been watching for an opportunity to ask you if you have settled that other question yet about which we talked so much a year ago or more. Oh, he said lightly, how can you expect me to remember which subject you mean? Didn't you lecture me on every conceivable topic that winter and spring? Will, you know exactly what I mean. Do I? Well, then, I must confess neglect. I'm afraid your unworthy servant must still cry, Go thy way for this time. And when is the convenient season coming? My dear Miss Carey, I beg ten thousand pardons, I mean, my dear madame, how can I tell? I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Oh, Will, how you disappoint me! I am almost sorry you have come up to this end of the city to live. There is so much here that ought to be done, and earnest-hearted young men are so sadly needed. If you were not here, it is possible that an active Christian might be put in your place, and we need him so much. The young man thus addressed made a profound bow, too low to be considered other than mockery, as he said, I'm sure I ought to express my gratitude after that. Your consideration for me, then, amounts to this, that if I were out of the way being a scapegrace, it is possible some good, pious young deacon might reign in my stead. The grave face did not change. You want to turn me away from the thought, Will, by wheedling me into explaining what needs no explanation. You know what I mean. I have said all to you that I know how to say, and you were honored with such a father and mother as few have. You know the way perfectly. You could be a power among the young men in this part of the city, and a power like what you could be is most sadly needed. But since you choose to be only a stumbling block, it is natural for me to wish that in your place someone might have come who would give the needed help. You have grown cross since you became a housekeeper, Mrs. Spafford. I think I have heard that domestic life had a deleterious effect on the nervous system. How can you call me such an ugly name as a stumbling block? Don't I do my best to set your Christian young men an example? I am always at prayer meeting. Neither rain nor heat nor pleasure keeps me from the lecture room on Thursday evening. Last Thursday, three of your young members went downtown to the comic lecture, but I was faithful to my post and led the singing, if you will remember. I do the best I can. To be sure, the boys will not always follow my example, but am I to be blamed for that? 
there was a grieved expression about his handsome mouth, and a sound in his voice as of one who had been unjustly arraigned, and a wicked look of unutterable fun in his eyes. Perverse young genius that he was, he knew that his moral life and exceedingly punctilious adherence to all the outward forms of religion were matters of comment among his acquaintances. He knew there was not an object in which the church was supposed to be interested that did not receive from him more hearty and patient assistance than from almost any of its younger members, male or female. And Mrs. Spafford, knowing this, knew also that he prided himself upon it, that he was careful to make his life so moral, his actions so beyond reproach, as to actually bring a reproach upon the members of Christ's flock, because, as he had once gaily expressed it, this disreputable wolf would persist in acting so much more like a sheep than the sheep themselves did. This marked feature of the young man's character had been the source of much anxiety to Mrs. Spafford. As a teacher, she had been somewhat familiar with young men, and knew the rocks on which they often made shipwreck. And though this was by no means a common one, it seemed to her all the more dangerous. I don't think young men of the present day very often stumble over their own righteousness into the pit, but I am certainly afraid that Will Coleman will do it. This she said to her husband in one of their confidential talks. She hesitated as to what to say to Will at this moment. He was looking down at her out of his roguish eyes, they saying as plainly as words could that his position was perfectly unanswerable. Will, do you know the eleventh verse of the eighteenth chapter of Luke? It was apparently so sudden a change of subject, and so unexpected a question, that the young man regarded her with a bewildered air for a moment, then slowly repeated the words. The eleventh verse of the eighteenth chapter of Luke? I don't believe I do. It doesn't sound familiar some way though it may be one of those verses that I rattled off in Sunday school a thousand times or so, between the ages of four and ten. If you would kindly start it for me, as the teacher used to do, perhaps I could go on. Mrs. Spafford shook her head. I don't want to start it for you. I want you to find it some evening in the quiet of your own room, and read it carefully, and consider it thoughtfully, and ask your own heart if there is any reason why I should think of it when I talk with you. Will, with a very important air, drew a notebook and pencil from his pocket. I'll attend to that item of business at the first reasonable opportunity. Give me chapter and verse again, please, in order that I may make no mistake. What are you two moralizing over? It was the clear, ringing voice of Jenny West that asked the question, a voice that, despite his efforts to the contrary, that always set Will Coleman's pulses into quicker throbbing. She looked so pretty this evening. She was dark-skinned and dark-eyed, and knew precisely what tint to wear to set off her face to the best advantage. Also, she would have compassed sea and land, had it been necessary to have secured the tint. Will Coleman, without raising his eyes from the book, knew, or thought he knew, that the very loveliest form of flesh and blood that the earth contained stood before him. Isn't it strange with what different eyes different people see? 
Mrs. Spafford, looking upon the pretty vision, thought only, Jenny is always a trifle overdressed for the occasion. I wonder when she will tone down, and what will do it. I am writing out my text, Will said, in answer to the question. I am going into the theological line. Haven't you always had a sort of unspoken feeling that I had mistaken my vocation? I'm about to change. This is to be my first sermon, which I am to prepare in the solitude of my own thoughts, of course. I don't know when I am to present it to the public. What is the text? laughed Jenny, to whom this nonsense sounded irresistibly funny. As to the wording, I am not quite sure. My memory is at fault sometimes, promising young theologue though I am. And, strange to say, I have forgotten my pocket Bible. But I am noting the figures so as to be prepared for the aforesaid solitude. I presume I shall spend hours over it tonight when I reach my home. Oh, I haven't doubt of it. Meantime, come and help make up a set for a quiet little promenade. Not a dance. Callie, don't open your eyes in horror. It is to be just the tamest sort of a promenade. The minister himself might join in it if he were here. It is just the thing for me to take a decorous farewell of the world in, said Will, and offering his arm with alacrity to the dazzling vision, and bestowing a deferential bow on Mrs. Spafford, he vanished. And Jenny is a Christian. This is what the somewhat sad-hearted young worker thought as she looked after the two. She was so certain that Jenny's type of religion did not commend itself to the keen eyes of Will Coleman. What was the result? Why, being very deeply interested in her, and unwilling to admit even to himself that she was a poor type of anything, he straightway concluded that there was very little besides form and words in the whole matter. Such being the case, those who were the least trammeled by forms, and said the fewest words about the matter, were the more agreeable people to be with. Yet this young man was always having war with himself and his views, because he could not help respecting Mrs. Spafford's religion. As for Mrs. Spafford, thus left to herself, she was at a loss what to do. Certainly she was strangely out of her natural element. Moreover, she began to doubt whether it was true that in gatherings like these there was really any chance to drop a seed, hoping for harvest. She looked over at her husband, bright, genial, apparently having a delightful time. What was he talking about? Why did those gentlemen about him seem so interested and animated, and withal so sensible? Why could gentlemen have so much better time than ladies, anyway? What should she do next? If she could get a peep at her watch unobserved, and discover whether it were not almost time to go home, she would like it. Yet what had become of her views about mingling socially with people, and giving and getting? I don't seem to be able to give anything, she told herself in despondent mood, and certainly I don't find anybody who is giving to me. Altogether, if time could have rolled back a few hundred years, and she could have sat down beside that disheartened old Elijah during the brief hour that he halted under a juniper tree and made his moan, she would have been in just the mood to sympathize with him. End of chapter 7